What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It's Friday, May 6th, 2022, and I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, what's going on? Matt, hey, not much, my dude. It is Kentucky Derby weekend for all you extremely white folk out there who just love <laughs> to get down to the racetrack and, and bet on some horses. Um, I just like watching it. I'm not really a big like horse racing fan, but some people are. It's a good weekend to throw on your funkiest pair of pants and drink a mint julep. Yes, and put on a dumb hat too. You got to put on a very <laughs> stupid hat. Yeah, it's just th- that kind of that kind of event, I guess. <laughs> we are also recording on Wednesday, May 4th, so may the 4th be with you to all of my Star Wars fans out there. I am one of you, so big day for us. Yes, and also <laughs> shout out to me for screwing that up on March 4th of this year. That's 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 fantastic. Great job, Nick. <laughs> well, we uh, we finally made it up to everybody. So, <laughs> all right, let's get into it. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way, Monday and Friday. All right, let's get into our quick hits for the week. So our first one is by Kate Aronoff of The New Republic, who writes, Bank of America, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo vote to keep financing fossil fuels. Since the Paris Agreement, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America have given fossil fuel interests $789 billion, including $119 billion just last year. Last Tuesday, shareholders in each bank tried to encourage divestment from fossil fuels and funding to go towards renewable energy. The goal was for the three banks to adopt proactive measures to ensure the company's lending and underwriting do not contribute to new fossil fuel supplies by the end of this year. The resolutions were rejected by all three banks. Yeah, so Citigroup's CEO, Jane Fraser, said, It is not feasible for the global economy, for human health or livelihoods to shut down the fossil fuel economy overnight. The author of this article points out that this quote is misleading because none of the proposals suggested shutting down the fossil fuel economy overnight. Yeah, it's just one of those classic, like, we can't do that. And it's like, well, hey, that's not what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to, you know, do this gradually in a way that kind of makes sense. Yeah, well, we can't do it that fast. Yeah, well, we're not asking you to (laughs) do it that fast. Yeah, it's, you know, a, a classic deflection. Yeah, it's like someone reading a tenth of an article and being like, yeah, I read the whole thing. Yeah, reading the tweet instead of the article and just being like, I am an expert. (laughs) Um, All right, let's get into some more bad news. The resolutions did not receive much support when they were brought to a vote, only around 11 to 12 percent each. And experts said that many voters found Jane Fraser's comments persuasive. Um, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs have similar resolutions being brought to a vote in the coming weeks. And those outcomes are expected to be similar. Yeah, and there is some good news that came of this. So supporters of the resolutions saw the votes as a win for two reasons. 
So first, any resolution that gets more than 5% of shareholder votes is eligible to be refiled next year. And second, altogether, votes for the three resolutions represented $65 billion, which supporters are taking as a sign that a small but significant portion of Wall Street is starting to change their opinions on fossil fuels. Yeah, for me, it's a little hard to view this as a little victory because, frankly, a big victory would have been groundbreaking and could be an absolute game changer for climate change mitigation. But if this can be refiled in a year after a year of organizing and, you know, maybe some backdoor politicking with the shareholders, then maybe that small but significant portion of Wall Street that wants to divest from fossil fuels can gain even more momentum. Yeah, it's just like right now, the money is where it's been for the past, you know, however many years. It's it's in the hands of those people who are who have been pushing oil on on our society for, you know, the past however many years. Century. Century, there you <laughs> yeah. go. And and it's just like, well, the money's in their hands. So the people who are actually trying to get them to divest from fossil fuels are outnumbered. And, you know, maybe next year, like you said, we can we can try again and, and, and see if we can get more of the vote, but that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, it's tough. Like you said, the money's been there for so long, but something that you would think that the banks would be a little bit more proactive on is the money is going towards renewables. And there's so much you know, public support and private investment and federal and state level investment in renewables. You'd think that more of them would want to get on board with that and say, hey, we're actually going to get in on this early. That way we can make more money going forward. But I don't know, I guess it's hard to turn down that quick paycheck for a uh, for your board members. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So something that the article suggests that I tend to agree with is that, look, even with all of this going on, it's going to take state or federal regulations to get the banks to truly change. Um, it, it's not really something where, you know, 11 or 12% of voters are going to be able to next year get every single bank to divest from fossil fuels. So Hopefully states and hopefully the federal government gets involved here and, you know, we can make some real, real difference here. Yeah, agreed. All right, let's get into our next one here. It is titled, New Government Maps Show Nearly All the West is in a Drought and It's Not Even Summer Yet. This is unprecedented. From CBS News. Southern California officials declared a water shortage emergency and asked 6 million residents to limit outdoor watering to just once per week in response to the American West already experiencing drought conditions, which is scary because, like Nick said in the headline, it's not even summer yet. 95% of California is suffering from severe or extreme drought, according to government maps, which show drought conditions extending as far as Texas and Louisiana. Gloria Gray, the chairwoman of the Metropolitan Water District Board of Directors, said, We knew climate change would stress our water supplies and we've been preparing for it, but we did not know it would happen this fast. Las Vegas is also in jeopardy as Lake Mead needs a new pump to make sure that the water can flow to the city from its location on the Hoover Dam on the Colorado River. We spoke about Lake Mead last year and how its water level is extremely low and you know, into 2022, this is still an ongoing issue there. Yeah. And NASA scientist JT Rieger said, we're just starting to see the dominoes fall. It's drier. We're starting to see less water in our reservoirs and we have fires. And in California, there's just this series of consequences that we anticipate. So bad news, climate change is actively impacting the United States right now. 
silver lining. And, you know, I admit this is a very slim silver lining here, but maybe this is the sort of thing that will lead more people in the U.S. to take climate change seriously in states where climate denial or climate skepticism is more prevalent. Yeah. And this is reminding me of the Cape Town Day Zero. Basically, it just like forced everyone to use less water. Mm-hmm. And they basically pushed their day zero, where which is basically the day that they did not have any water left, um, back, I think it was like four or five years. Wow. And that's what I think this could do for, for California and possibly the whole United States is this is a massive wake-up call. Like, mm-hmm. this is our day zero. We need, to, we need to start, you know, reducing our water intake and, and figure out other ways to to push that day zero even further. So my question is, and this isn't really something that got into in the article, and this is something that I would definitely have to do some more, you know, outside research on, but when we talk about sacrifices that consumers have to make, you know, we said California, they asked 6 million residents to decrease outdoor watering to once a week. Something people will say is shut off your sink while you're brushing your teeth or take quicker showers. That's all on the individual level. And I'm curious what corporations are doing where, you know, certain processes are way more water intensive. Like, what do they need to do to make the real difference? Because we talk about that with oil consumption or plastic consumption, for example. And we're like, yeah, it's great when people like me and you cut back on our single use plastics. But what would be better is if big corporations stopped producing those plastics. And I wonder what the water side of this looks like. Yeah, it's a great point. And I'm also thinking about now, like the episode we did with Dan, where he said like it takes 3,000 or 2,000 liters of water just to make one Mm t-shirt, which is enough water for one person to drink for 900 days. So, (laughs) yeah, you know, it's it's definitely a balance. We need to figure out how much these these, uh, companies are using. Yeah, and uh, that's something we can definitely look into later on, not for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Speaking of droughts, our next story is from Andrew Hay and Adria Malcolm of Reuters. And they write, dangerous New Mexico wildfire forces historic city to evacuate. On Monday, Las Vegas, New Mexico saw hundreds of households evacuate as winds and drought pushed wildfire towards the town, which is about 30 miles northeast of Santa Fe. The fire had burned more than 121,000 acres by Monday, making it the largest active wildfire in the United States right now. Uh, For reference, that's about half of the area of New York City. As fire approached from the north and the west, the university town of 14,000 people staggered evacuations with another four to 5,000 people ready to go once given the order. There's uh, not much to add here as this is a developing story, but... You know, our, our thoughts go out to everyone impacted by this. And honestly, all we can do here is hope for the best and hope that the wildland firefighters can get this one under control as quickly as possible before it gets, you know, worse than it already is. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And keep your eyes out for more up to date reporting on this and how you can help those impacted if you are able to. Yeah. All right. Um, we are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, two more quick hits for you. The 
Planet today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up from the New York Times. Started out as a fish. How did it end up like this? By Sabrina Imbler. It was only a fish. It was only a fish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this one is pretty fun, all things considered. So it's difficult being a human with everything going on right now. And the article points to seas rising, polar bears headed towards extinction, taxes, the nine to five work week and potential nuclear war. So all of that fun stuff, gets, <laughs> you know, kick, kicking off the article right away. And who have the collective we turned to to blame for all of this? The Tiktaalik fish, which is 375 million years old and was depicted by Zena Doretsky in 2006. The fish looked like it was about to leave water, which memers have joked about by saying, that fish really never should have left. (laughs) (laughs) The article mentions how scientists will never know exactly why fish like this one left water, but they had four legs and that definitely helped them. They could have been looking for food, trying to find a place to breed, or maybe just escaping predators. Yeah, so whatever the reason, That group of fish is an ancestor to nearly all vertebrates on land today, including all amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals, and yes, humans. Kind of. Julia Molnar, an evolutionary biomechanist at the New York Institute of Technology, says an animal very much like Tiktaalik was the direct ancestor of humans because we can't say exactly that we came from this specific fish. Tiktaalik had four almost legs and didn't really begin walking until it was on land for a while. Before walking, it kind of used all four fins to move around, which has been compared to a Jeep's all-wheel drive. Yeah, imagine a fish just kind of like flopping around. (laughs) The way that they describe that, I was like, that is quite the visual. (laughs) Yeah, super weird. And its bones were asymmetrical, which allowed it to bend the fins and interact with the ground. So during this time period, all vertebrates on land pretty much wiggled, slithered, or flopped around as they evolved to develop legs. For this reason, Ben O'Toole, a graduate student studying early tetrapods at the University of Chicago, calls it the flop era, which I love. The flop era? I thought that was just Game of Thrones season eight. (laughs) (laughs) It was terrible. It was hard to watch. All right, my favorite thing O2 followed it up with was when he said that the flop era was a time of mental peace because everyone is only barely conscious of the idea that they're alive. And it's great, just vibes. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> 10 out of 10 quote right there. So something interesting about the Tiktaalik is that all of its known fossils are adult fish. So researchers hope to discover other earlier stages that could illuminate its life history, such as whether it undergoes metamorphosis or not, for example. So something the article also points out is that it's a bit of a stretch to say the aquatic fish really walked on land the way that we think of walking today. Tiktaalik was more likely just hanging out at the water's edge, scooting through the shallow water where limbless fish could not tread. What a wild like, idea of, of the first four-legged animal coming up on land. Like I'm just picturing <laughs> them, you know, they have arms, they have legs, but none of them work and they're just dragging themselves along. Like, yes, one day I will walk. <laughs> one day my grandkids will, my great, great, great grandkids will walk this earth. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane, dude. Yeah. So evolution's pretty cool. And a closing point from the article I'd like to bring up is that earth can change and so can humans. The continents all used to be one landmass. Shout out to Pangea. Love so Pangea. If, yeah, big Pangea guys here. <laughs> Huge. So if over thousands of years we can see the Earth turn into what it looks like today, it's really cool to imagine what certain species used to look like and what the ones that we know of today might evolve into as Earth continues to change. Yeah, I'm thinking about like pandas. Like what are they going to become? I don't know. They'll probably just become more lazy and like... Oh, I was going to say extinct, but I like yours a little Ooh, bit better. Oh, damn. That was harsh. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic right now. <laughs> Okay, let's get into our last quick hit of the week, and it is from the Daily Gazette, where Andrew Waite writes, No Mo May. Growing environmental movement now has local roots. Absolutely love this. We talked about pollinators last week and how no mo zones are a way to help them out. And this article is about Sustainable Saratoga launching its No Mo May initiative to encourage residents not to cut their grass until June. This will provide more food for pollinators like bees and butterflies during a crucial time of the year for their species. And opponents of this are the type of people who love the idea of the American lawn and can't really think of letting their grass get too long. But supporters can be either people who are more environmentally conscious or people who realize not mowing your lawn is actually easier than mowing your lawn. <laughs> yeah, and there's also um, this new thing. It's called a push reel mower and it does not do as fine of a job as like a you know classic lawn mower or John Deere would do mm -hmm. but it's actually way better because you can hear yourself speak right and you can just walk around in flip-flops you don't have to like wear actual shoes you can just chill out and and, and mow your lawn I think the issue with it making less noise which I think is a great thing but Part of the, you know, the charm of mowing your lawn is waking up the neighbors at like 6 a.m. on a Saturday <laughs> and taking that away from suburban dads. They're not going to be happy. No, no, no. This is this is a source of pride for many people. And I, I completely understand it. If I was mowing my lawn, you know, since 1908, I would have a hard time giving it up, too. But ultimately, it is better for, you know, the um, the ecosystems around your area and it provides so much more life if your lawn is not mowed and you're just like letting whatever lives there live. Yeah. And some Midwestern communities are going on their third no mow May and pollinator populations have been on the rise since. 
See, it works. In Appleton, Wisconsin, five times as many bees and three times as many bee species have been seen at the 435 households that took part in Nomo May in 2020. By letting native plants take over a landscape, it can decrease a lawn's reliance on pesticides and also needing to be mowed. Yeah, it turns out the plants that are native to an environment survive well in that environment without chemical help. So who would have thought? (laughs) Honestly, the more we do this show, the more it's like a lot of environmental things are just kind of common sense that we don't really think of because of what we've accepted for so long. But yeah, (laughs) yeah, that makes total sense. Like the plants that are supposed to be here grow well and you don't really need to do much to them to make them grow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, For anyone who doesn't really know about the importance of pollinators, the U.S. Department of Agriculture breaks down pretty nicely. So of the 1,400 crop plants grown around the world, so those that produce all of our food and plant-based industrial products, almost 80% require pollination by animals or insects. Visits from bees and other pollinators also result in larger, more flavorful fruits and higher crop yields. And just to add a layer onto that, the USDA estimates that pollination of agricultural crops is valued at $10 billion per year. Yeah, so it's got a big environmental impact to let the pollinators thrive and, you know, let them do their thing with native plants and crops. Also, it has a really big economic value to, again, just let them do what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, 100%. And for someone like me who is not a big insect person, uh, this summer is the live and let live summer for me. I'm going to let every insect that I see live as long as they're not in my house. I'm going to let every insect live and do their thing because ultimately it's going to create more flavorful fruits, better crop yields and better crop yields for you. The consumer means cheaper prices when you go to the grocery store. True. And we're going to check in on Nick next week to ask him how his first week of catching spiders and releasing (laughs) them outside goes because that be a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Um, if you, like me, do not have a lawn and don't really have a say in what gets done at your apartment building, townhouse complex, etc., call someone you care about who owns their own land and tell them about Nomo May. If you live in a community that has a homeowners association, try to propose Nomo May in the community guidelines for next year. You know, there are steps we can all take to try to make the community a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Nick and I are going to be back on Monday to talk about, honestly, a really important issue, plastics, plastic recycling, and California's attempt to take down big oil over the plastic issue. Yes, definitely tune in. We're going to be talking about some really interesting plastic stuff. Check it out. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. And Nick produces our show, makes all of our music. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.